Whether you're an aspiring music business professional or a seasoned vet, every Thursday, the Music Business Podcast brings you the trends and tactics from some of the world's most innovative minds in music. I'm artist manager and consultant, Jordan Williams. And I'm Sam Heisel, co-founder of the music marketing and content production agency, Knox. We're not teachers. We're entertainment industry professionals, drinkers, wannabe comedians, and most importantly, fans. Welcome to the show. Jordan, what's happening, bro? How are you feeling? <laughs> I'm good, man. How are you doing, Sam? I'm good. We're so excited by this intro that we stumbled a little bit, but this, this is going to be it. This is going to be it. Who we got lined up today? We got Cassie Petrie and Jay Driver. They're co-founders of a digital marketing agency called Crowdsurf. For those who don't know, as they mentioned in the episode, Met in College, we're both really big fans of the Backstreet Boys and turn that fandom into actionable insights and executionable actions that they did both separately for the Backstreet Boys. And then they were able to replicate that super fandom and uh, take advantage of and, and connect with and build a community around other, around other artists using the same, the same methodology. So um, I'm really excited to get into this episode because one, just even from a personal level, um, you know, there's a lot of people in the music industry where Obviously, they they love what they do and they're very passionate about it. But it's just so raw and on display in this in this episode. Um, we hear from the beginning of their origin stories and how they got to where they are today, to the executives, the powerful executives that they are today. Um, so I'm just really excited to 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 let kind of people in on their journey. They worked with Guns and Roses, uh, Backstreet Boys, Britney Spears, Fifth Harmony. You know, you name it. So. Um, you know, whether you're an artist, whether you're a manager, I think this will give you a lot of insight on how to do a lot of the things that they've done in, in, in their career and, and how they built it to where where it is today. What do you think, Sam? Yeah, man. I think that was well said. And I have to say what, what stood out to me in this episode was they did a really good job at defining what constitutes a fan and, and what are various attributes or traits that an act needs to have in order to develop true, very excited fans. So I thought that was a really interesting framework that they spoke through along with a couple other tactics as to how you can think about acquiring and developing a fan base around you or your artist's work. The the other thing, one last quick thing before we jump into the episode, just do want to give a shout out to all of our patrons. Uh, things are popping off in the Discord community. We're, we're looking out for each other, trying to find ways to uh, answer any questions, giving you guys an early heads up as to who we're interviewing in case you want to submit questions for upcoming guests. And I think what's most important too is that any uh, all of our patrons are literally just investing into the podcast and helping us continue to reinvest. So that way we can create more supporting content, find those snackable moments, put them out on social media. We're starting to release articles. Um, I think we we all want to rise together. So let us help help us help you. And if you want to learn more or find a way to find out how and join our Patreon community, just go to musicbusinesspodcast.com slash community. That's musicbusinesspodcast.com slash community. But without any further ado, let's get into this week's episode. Let's do it. Cassie, Jade, welcome to the show. How are you both today? Doing great. Yeah, doing good. How about you guys? We are uh, awesome. pushing, pushing forward. Yeah. Cannot complain. <laughs> so... Uh, awesome. with that said, uh, definitely excited to dive into to all things marketing and talk a little more about the, the journey with the company. But for starters, could you just both kind of uh, talk a little bit about your how you got your first start in the music industry and how it kind of uh, turned into and developed into what it is today? Jade, if you want to kick it off, 
then we could just- Sure. Um, so I got my start in the music industry actually working in radio. So I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, and there was a station called Radio Disney that is near and dear <laughs> to my heart. And um, it was a local, you know, station from the national station. Um, at the time, I remember they had 54 stations across the country, eventually expanded to South America, Brazil. Um, and I wanted to be a Radio Disney Street team member. We were called the Fun Squad. <laughs> and, you know, I uh, I saw them doing these things. They were out and about. They were doing meet and greets with artists and, you know, all these kind of little activations. And I was like, I want to do that. So I essentially called... <laughs> and asked how that worked. Um, they brought me in for an interview and they asked me, why do you want this job? And I told them because I wanted to meet the Backstreet Boys. They laughed. <laughs> I now manage the Backstreet Boy. Kind of how it started. Awesome. That's like the, one of the more fun ways I think I've heard people join the music industry. I think, <laughs> I think, I think when we have people on here, they're like, uh, you know, I did this internship. It really kicked my ass, but you know, it ended up turning into something, 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 something. It was one of those situations where like, I lived in Richmond, Virginia, not a, yeah. um, but I had incredibly great mentors at that job. Um, Laura Hemker and Amy Grelick, they just, they were just badass women that ran the station and kind of yeah. saw in me this ability to kind of just pick up and run things. So, um, I had one of my kind of first experiences doing management, you know, with other people, um, not uh -huh. artists, but just like management a job when one of them got pregnant, when I'm maternity leave, she said, okay, you run it for six weeks. And I was like, what? Wow. <laughs> I, I succeeded. Wow. And it, it a lot, but you know, it was, I was hired for a job that was I think 525 an hour. And essentially the key component of the job was passing out, you know, samples and coupons at gas stations and baseball games and things like that. And what I ended up doing was kind of just making my own path again, still being paid 525 an hour. I was, you know, 18 and I started realizing, Hey, when these salespeople, you know, put together these activations, they can bring artists to town. And like, that was my, the thing I cared about most concerts, right. art, meet and greets, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so I essentially just kind of dug in on my own time. I started making cold calls to managers of artists that the station were playing and saying, Hey, how much would it cost to bring your artist to town? What's your writer? And kind of like compiled a notebook saying like, here's a binder full of everyone we can bring to town and what we need to do. And mm -hmm. so my supervisor said, okay, well now you got to figure out who's going to pay for it. I said, okay. So I would put together these like crazy marketing campaigns. I would go to the sales department who were, I'm sure making bank off of the, <laughs> okay, let's do this promotion. Let's bring this artist to town. They cost this much. Let's get the local Ford dealership to pay for it. And I did it, um, at five twenty-five an hour, but I was <laughs> happy as a clay. I'm like, I, you know, was literally using someone else's money to pay for a boy band to come to town and sing to me. So, um, that really was like when I learned a lot of how the music industry worked, cause I learned about, you know, how an age, you know, booking agent works, how a manager works, how a label works. I start, I started off the process calling labels, not knowing that, that wasn't really how it worked. So that was my first gig and, and it taught me a lot. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. What about you, Cassie? Um, I would say that like, you know, I can talk about like my first internship or first job, but I think that sort of the first thing that set me off to like where I am now is I actually was I was also a very big Backstreet Boys fan that's one of the first things that like Jade and I bonded over when we met in college uh, but I ran an online 
magazine. It was it was when like AOL just came out and there weren't really like, you know, there wasn't like I couldn't make a Twitter fan site or anything that didn't exist. So I had an email list that I ran, but you like decorated it and made it pretty. It was a whole like scene and thing for fangirls. And I ran one called Backstreet Asylum, um, which is terrifying to think about that that was the name now. But um, that was, that was what, that's what it was uh, called. And it, um, I just kind of became like a serial sort of super fan and like street team girl from there. And mm-hmm. I actually positioned all that stuff um, on my resume to get sort of my, you know, first like sort of volunteer. I don't know. I don't know if there would really be internships. I did them in high school, but I worked with like a local band and a mm-hmm. local record label. And was and, and all that. I think people sometimes don't realize that you can put all that stuff on like your resume, but you can and you should because it's right. just in your field. And I was able to put all those sort of little volunteer street team fan things on my resume, and that got me my first um, job as a I was a college rep for Warner. And normally they wouldn't take somebody like a, I got it as a freshman going into college, and normally they wouldn't have taken somebody at that age but they're like you have more on your resume than most juniors and seniors do so right that was sort of where you know my first kind of like way into meeting like people in the music industry at large and it was because i found every little thing i could do locally in louisville to um you know build a resume to impress somebody you know at that level when it was time to do that Right. I want to take a pause here. One, because I was also a very big Backstreet Boys fan, and I actually team NSYNC, team team uh, NSYNC yeah. right here. I mean, I was both, man. Fun. You don't have to hate each happened. other. How can we bring it back? <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> I used to actually literally pose as when I was really young. Like I would try to repose the album photos from the Backstreet Boys. Like I would literally. Who am I, a millennial? Photos. <laughs> I I don't remember off the top now. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome though that you that you could do that because at one point I literally was like pretending to be all of them at some point. So first off, I just wanted to say that. Second of all, um, I, we get a lot of questions, at least I do, about if I need to move to New York, if I need to move to LA in order to join the music industry. And I think you guys' story just goes to show that there is stuff you can do locally, even if it isn't working for a huge label or a huge company. Every every city, every town has a radio station, for example, like you, Jade. You know. Yeah. There's so much you can do, especially on the internet now. Cassie, you did it even when things weren't as popular, you know? Yeah. So imagine the imagine the spread and influence you could have now in your city, you know? So I just wanted to take a pause to say that. Um, Cassie, Absolutely. you also, your, your newsletter, you said, I, th- I think you didn't say this. I saw online that it reached like 10,000 people or something like that. Yeah, which sounds little in like today's standards, but that was a lot in that era of like email lists. And, and that kind of thing you know I would say that would be like right. the equivalent of like at least a hundred thousand or more like on a Twitter fan account or an Instagram I completely account, agree that sort of thing. yeah that was going to be my next question like how did you do that back then and what are some of the what are some of the staples that you think just in terms of how to market and build a community that have tested that have uh passed the the, the test of time from then to now I'm glad you brought that up because I think a lot of digital marketing really is more about um, psychology and like bigger picture practices versus like the technicality. And a lot of the stuff I did to build those subscribers then actually applies now. Um, One thing Mm -hmm. I did a lot of was collaborations, which is huge now and everyone collabs on songs to TikToks to that sort of thing. But what what collaborations meant in that world was there's a couple versions of it. One was um, 
you would have a guest editor write an article or a piece for your email list and I would do the same. So we would like uh, collaborate and market to each other's audiences. Mm-hmm. And um, there's also, I remember when Jade and I actually had a teacher tell us the term and it sounds really creepy, but it was um, called a web ring. <laughs> and, um, and basically what that is, is you would like at the, at the bottom <laughs> of each email list, you would, um, you would basically have like three other newsletters that you recommend. So it actually was, mm. you know, collaboration was a really big part of that. And then just being like unique and, you know, having sort of your own thing and why people would, you know, want to follow you. Like I remember the the sections of my newsletter were different than everyone else's and they mm-hmm. were a little unique and had information that, you know, I wasn't just copying what everyone else was doing. I was doing my own thing. And I think that stuff still applies to digital marketing and social media right. today. You, you know, figuring out ways to get in front of new audiences and creating a situation that benefit both parties. I would never have gone to somebody and been like, can you feature me in your newsletter and I won't feature you? Like we always traded. You always have to like find a way to make it work for both parties involved. And then just being creative and making good content and being unique and finding your lane and something that's different than everyone else. And I think those are two really important things still today. And, you know, like over 20 years later. Right. Right. I love that. So one question, I mean, I, I think when it comes to some of today's tactics, if you will, um, I know having worked with, from a marketing capacity and serving different artists, oftentimes it's, uh, I mean, you do kind of need to make sure that all your ideas and strategies do very much ladder back to this specific kind of creative vision and direction and, and play to what makes that artist unique. But also speaking from experience, and I'm sure this will probably resonate with you, it's uh, can be challenging from a marketing standpoint, because oftentimes the, the ideas that you're bringing to the table might just not always feed directly into the uh, it might feel off brand. It might not be necessarily that feels like the right thing for this artist. So if you had, if, if you could create like a pet artist that you have complete control, like not that you have complete creative control over, maybe it's like literally just you as an alias, like you have like the side part of your life. That's an artist and you have a serious marketing budget behind it. How would you go about building a fan base? If you could really execute upon any marketing tactic that you know of? I feel like Cassie has to answer this because, like, like, (laughs) like, I just feel like her describing an alias artist, like, of her own would be something I would enjoy more than her hearing me do this. (laughs) I mean, so if I had all the, like, I get in, so I can make any artist, any, any money, anything. Yeah, so you have a budget, Sam? There's an emerging artist. You have a a, a 200K marketing budget. Um, the artist has great, let's assume that the artist has great music. So this is really focused on kind of a a marketing capacity and more of like a marketing thought exercise, but how would you go about, uh, what tactics would you deploy and how would you allocate the spend? Okay. Because first I was going to say, if there's enough money, I would just make myself be it, but there's not enough money to do the work (laughs) that I would need to be a pop artist. (laughs) Um, not enough money to make me be able to sing and dance and cosmetically fit the part. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I, I mean, I would definitely, I would, I would want to, I would want to, we love Brittany and Backstreet here. Like those are like kind of our, you know, ideal, you know, sort of, you know, situation throwback, like artists that really inspired us. So I would definitely want the artist to be somebody that's like, I love dancing. I love like Max Martin, you know, pop, whatever, you know, that ver- whatever today's version is of that beautiful visuals and just beautiful like iconic music videos i think that's really missing 
And I mean, 200K, I could probably get like two two great music videos out of it, but I would make two really amazing, <laughs> incredible, contro- slightly like borderline controversial. You don't want to go too controversial, but like right on the border um, where people are talking about it and it's like not completely like out of line, but like some people could interpret it to be like, I would be all in, all in on like music, video, like great visual, um, just music video is really what I think I would put my money into if I, with that budget. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we, we've seen, we've seen a music video be a phenomenon with like, this is America by Childish Gambino. It was like that, yeah. that, that could have been the only song he put out that year, honestly, <laughs> but it was big, it was big, it was big enough to last like for, and it probably will last like the test of time just because, because of the the concept and and how it came together and and the visuals themselves so I, I totally I totally get that um now in terms of like the marketing landscape as a whole from like social channels Twitter Facebook those type of things to playlist pitching um to publicity what do you guys both think are the most important channels to focus on um and I know this may change from the different stages of your career so I want both of you to answer, if you can, the beginning of your career and sort of at the peak of your career and then kind of somewhere in the middle and how that kind of changes over time. So I guess the progression and kind of what you focus on. Yeah. So I think like the beginning of your career, it's about one, establishing a brand. I think that's super Mm. important. Um, I just get so many like young people that come in and say, I I have a talent, I can sing, whatever. Um, Which like to me, singing is a dime a dozen. I mean, yes, you're going to have, you know, your Kelly Clarkson's out there that can sing or your Christina Aguilera's or whatever, but like like, most artists, like, yeah, you can sing. So can a bunch of other kids. Um, But like, you know, really finding a brand and, and like, what is your story? Why are you different? Like, that's the thing that I sit down with like my baby artists and I, and I really dig in to find like, why are you interesting? What is something? Cause the thing is like, when you right. think about fandoms and, and artists that people obsess over, the brand is always so solid. Like you don't have people obsessing over an artist that has like, yeah, loose brand, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like they're not like, <laughs> of there they can sing and that and they're there and you know what i'm saying like there's a thing i may, like, I may steal brand. that saying loose brand i made a venn diagram to show like the like one of the three things you have to have to have a fandom um and i think people mm. like and it has to be really strong and you either have to have people either want to they need to want to marry you they want to be entertained by you or they want to be you. It has to be like one of those three mm. things. Sometimes they can overlap. Um, you know, it's kind of weird to want to marry yourself though. But like, you know, <laughs> anyway. Um, I, want to, like, I also want to be and marry Adam Lambert. So it can happen. <laughs> yeah, it can. There's, you know, it's not, it's not impossible, but um, it, it's kind of one like one of... It, but, but it, not even be but like you can be a part of them like be like inspired by certain aspects of them their work ethic or their creativity their lyrics but you, they, you have to like it, you don't have to be them completely but you have to be it, it, like it, and all those are extremes like you have to be extremely inspired extremely entertained or like really in love with somebody like those are like the three things that you have to have and if you aren't exciting that that in somebody then you have to keep redoing your formula until you do that's pretty awesome. So, I mean, not to put you on the spot, but also to put you on the spot, what do you think is an, a person that kind of exemplifies all three of those things? I mean, not at the same time, but three mm-hmm. different artists. 
we can we can do a a brain collective here too. <laughs> I mean, I think um I think John Mayer is a really good example. A lot of like people have huge crushes on John Mayer, and that's like their ideal partner. A lot of people mm-hmm. are really inspired by his lyrics and music, or they or they're entertained by him because he's extremely funny. Or some people like he exudes like what they want to dress like or play like. You know, he has like all, and I think that he has different fan bases in those different categories. But he yeah. really has. He really checks a lot of boxes in a lot of those categories. And some of those like emerged later. Like he, you know, like I, cause I remember I liked him when I was in high school and I didn't, I didn't even at that point, like there wasn't social media. So I didn't really know how funny he was at that point. And I think that's something <laughs> that ended up liking about him later. And I think mm-hmm. the same with that. When I, David, I was I worked with say that. Open, and he was kind of the same way when we were working with him and we, we 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 started like his youtube channel and getting him on twitter and you know like kind of back in like mid uh like you know around 2005 or so and like nobody at that point knew how funny he was and social media really helped bring that out in him so i think think that was that was really cool for him Uh, awesome and then who is uh who's someone that someone wants to be and who's someone that what i guess john mayer was the married one right the Backstreet Boys. I mean, all Who them. are the Backstreet, the Backstreet Boys? Boys are the ones you want to marry and maybe are inspired by. Um, like they kind of <laughs> felt like at first it was about like selling cute boys, but then they got to a point where like you know they started getting involved in causes around the second album, and you know their second album, all the art was done around um, right. of the earth. I'm air. I'm fire. I'm, which is like a whole <laughs> different level, but like it was more. Right. I'm a cute face. Um, you know, Nick put a secret coded message in the album notes and, you know, it became for me, it was like, okay, I'm so in love with you. Oh my God. And there's like, oh my God, and you inspire me. I want to be a better person because of you and save the dolphins. Um, I don't know if I ever wanted to be them. I don't know if that was part of necessarily the marketing. I mean, I do think there were maybe some. I mean, you did, you did use the them. Yeah, I did. I did. I was about to say, I was definitely one of the guys. He is a fan. I always looked at like Backstreet and Britney as like a really good pop package of the time. And it was Mm. similar like when I was like in third and fourth grade and it was New Kids on the Block and Debbie Gibson. So it was like, I wanted to marry them, but like I wanted to be her. And then it was that Mm. with Britney. And and then it became Fall Out Boy. No doubt was that for me. And I think I've always had that, like, like a girl that inspired me that I wanted to, like, be like. And then there were, like, the boys that I, like, had the crush on. And both of them, I think, I think for me, it's like both of them always had to kind of hit that inspiring thing, especially as I got older. Um, And so, yeah, it's just kind of a mix of all of it. Right. Do you think that you can tend to both at the same time? Or do you think it's best to actually focus on one and then pivot to another or focus you know, multiple ones or I mean, look, if you kind of, all of it, that's uh, amazing. It, I think Fall Out Boy is uh, a great example of that. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know how familiar you are with them, but like when they were, yeah, like, I love Fall Out Boy. Yeah, when they were like the biggest band in the world, 2005, 2006, like they had all those things. Everyone wanted yeah. to fuck Pete Wentz. Everyone wanted to, you know, be like them. Like that's where, you know, all these, like he's dying his hair and doing the emo thing and the guy liner or whatever. And like, everyone started emulating that. Like to me, he was like the MySpace king before most people even knew what MySpace was. And then everybody wanted to copy. That's how he could start a clothing brand and and all that kind of stuff. Um, And then on top of it, then you go into looking at the way they kind of 
um, marketed that band over time. And it's like, it, to me, it was almost a boy band formula. And it's like, you look at these like four punk kids and you don't think like, they don't look like Justin Timberlake or Nick Carter, but like, they really did play that boy band formula with them eventually throwing them on, you know, Rolling Stone with Pete with the shirt off and all that kind of stuff. And then on the, like the aspiring and like wanting to be dude, that was like, if you were a real fan of that band, and I think you dug like maybe a little past the singles and like, you were like, I am a fallout boy fan. It was all about that. Like I learned to be a writer because of the way that like, I, <laughs> because of the way that, and I don't mean songwriter. I mean like, like a writer, like a blogger, yeah. because of the way that like yeah. Pete was blogging on the side. He wrote a book. He, you know what I'm saying? Like it was beyond the songs to me. It was a lifestyle. And I wanted to be like him and I literally am doing a march down the road for the invisible children. I had never act, been an activist for anything in my life, but all of a sudden, <laughs> like, attention to things. For me. So for me, that was like all three of the things very, um, very well done. Right. Awesome. That's awesome. That's and all of them seem like they, they cause you to do something. Yeah. <laughs> like whether it's you, you, you know, all, all of them are kind of actions on that. I mean, I think for so me it's, it's not necessarily yeah. passive. It's, I think for me, especially, and I think for Cassie, it's other artists, but like, I'd say like a combination of like the marketing of the Backstreet Boys and fallout boy were probably the biggest, um, like catalyst for, for what crowd surf became for me and like what I wanted to work on. Yeah. Amazing. So when it comes to the, like the journey with CrowdSurf, can you talk a little bit about the, I mean, kind of the initial approach as far as how you would service clients and how that's evolved to the approach that you're deploying today? Sure. Cassie can talk about what she did in her dorm room. <laughs> so um, I remember I, when I was a college rep, I remember when MySpace came out and we were like, I think Jade and I were in our, my dorm room and because she would like live three doors down from me. And um, I was registering my MySpace account. And we were looking around like, and, you know, finding stuff or whatever. And I, I think I said something along the lines of like, I want to run MySpace pages for people one day. And I, and I really like, I, I really like took that to heart because I felt like that was such a hole in the market and nobody was doing mm-hmm. it yet. And we kind of, ran with that concept and that's sort of like the very base level thing that's evolved to what we have done today. Awesome. That kind of goes back to Sam, you know, we've spoken before on underpriced attention um, and how TikTok is now that underpriced attention, that place where people don't really know how it works, but there's so many, a lot of people on it. People are consistently signing up. And back then it would sound, you know, it was MySpace. It was like, Oh, there's this new cool, shiny new toy on the internet. Um, and, you know, let's figure out how we can best use it. So I guess you got a little bit of HTML then, huh, too? Because I, I, like, definitely spent hours on that profile yes. going through my top 10, <laughs> all of that. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, were, I learned HTML in high school because I wanted to make mm-hmm. an Ashton Kutcher fan site. And I did. And it's still online somewhere. Um, but, so, but I was able to use my HTML in my space and I, I learned I was I think I was I don't didn't see anybody else do this for me figuring out how to push down the page so you could have a header um yeah I don't remember anybody maybe I, I don't have evidence but I, I don't remember anybody else doing that before like we did which was pretty cool and just really like figuring out some like customization and you know stuff on the pages it was it was fun to play with and figure out ways to yeah. make that look cooler right right um cool well i want to shift a little bit more towards like like a specific campaign that you guys have done recently so like what's the what's the large-scale campaign that you guys have worked on 
And um, when you do start a campaign that's as large as, you know, the example that you'll say, um, what are kind of the first steps in executing it? What are the first things that you have to think about? Um, let's see, I'm trying to think of like a good example. I mean, I, you know, I can sort of start one thinking of good examples with like, you have to, I think it's making sure everyone is on the same page about what the end goal is and then working backwards to figure out how you create that end goal. So is it like launching a new single and making sure that it charts on iTunes or is it, um, you know, launching a tour and selling it out immediately? Is it, um, is it, you know, having a, so a song that's a slow burner leading into an album that's coming in three months? Like, I, I think have, getting everyone on the same page about what the long-term goal is, is incredibly important. And then you work backwards to, you, to, to achieving that goal. And I, I would say a lot of times the way that works is we'll suggest multiple, like, ideas for achieving that goal or parts of that goal and collaborate with the artist and team on that and figure out the, you know, kind of the you know, sort of best way to, to go into that and, and, you know, roll, you know, roll into that. And, and, you know, it's like, okay, if you want to have a you know, number one song on iTunes, okay, let's figure out what the best day of the, you know, should that go on Friday? Should that go on Tuesday so that you're not competing with as many people? Um, you know, should it go this week versus the next week? Cause this week looks more crowded, like a lot of like sort of more like technical granular stuff. And then, and then once we sort of have all that outlined, then we can kind of figure out like, what the what the fun parts of that are and i would say a lot of times the, it's a lot of times it's us following the artist lead on that kind of mm -hmm. thing like we'll suggest ideas but i would say like 10 years ago like we would completely do that part of it but now are it's more of like us like make you know either executing the artist idea or you know coming up with ideas to supplement it or modifying it i mean jade would you agree with that or do you have any sort yeah, of like good references i remember like i remember when we we did used to do most of it you know and i remember one time reading about i was very very into lady gaga kind of before she had her first single out like we found her on myspace um and actually we, we found saw, her my 21st birthday if we found her because we saw her play live he she opened for one of our friends and then we looked her up on myspace <laughs> and we found her music off of myspace because it didn't exist um and i just thought this was some indie artist that was never i would never hear from again but i was really really into it and like i remember like as that first album came out i was super obsessed with it and i was very obsessed with kind of like her part in laying out that image and that brand and like having her hands in everything because quite frankly i hadn't had a lot of artists be like that. And I was like, wow, this is like the dream. This is like what I imagine working with a fallout boy would be like. So, you know, there right. were artists that were very like that and very hands-on. And I remember at the time thinking that would be a dream artist, but yeah, as things have come, you know, things have gone on and, and, you know, I think it's, it's still that, you know, back then people didn't necessarily accept kind of digital as, um, something that would stay around forever, you know? And I, and I think it was a place that like, honestly, I think it was a place where the heads of labels or the decision makers weren't paying attention to while some artists started actually creating brands for themselves, which is also how influencer culture was born and all that kind of stuff. So because right. like, if, and if you think about it, it's like, you know, I always give the example back when 
you know, it was 99, 2000, whatever. And I was just clamoring for Backstreet Boys content. The only content I would get is if they were on TRL or I bought their home DVD. There was no place to get like new videos, photo. Like there was none of that. It was just like an official photo in a magazine or something like that. I had to like pay for the media in some way where now right. there's a way where an artist, like for the first time an artist can speak their mind or put information out about themselves without someone having to do it for them. But 20 years ago, a publicist, a label, a manager, like they were, they were the only, they always had to be between that artist and their vision and the public eye. And so what's changed over time is as that's become more accepted, I think artists have become more comfortable saying, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do, I'm going to do this, whether you like it or not. <laughs> I can log right. into my, my yeah. and do I was going to say, it's a gift and a curse now. Back in the day, like artists, you know, you, you watch these old documents, you know, the new kids on the block. That was a very, you know, big inspiration of mine growing up and one of our clients now. And it's like, it was all so laid out. You know what I'm saying? It was all so like, um, you know, you do this, you smile this way, you know, and that's like what you see in these like old documentaries. But now it's like, Donnie runs the show and it's his ideas. And hey, I would like, he was like, hey, I want to do like a basketball bracket, but with like new kid songs around like Final Four. And it was cool. We did this whole big campaign and it's literally him on the phone, choosing songs, doing the thing. And, you know, I've, I've toured with him several times and it's like, to me, I love watching him. He's one of those people to me, like the real creatives that like, put like they have an amazing stage show and like puts it together and it's his his band and he wants to make sure everything is on and it's working and it's cool to see something that was so kind of manufactured in a way 30 plus years ago now become something that this artist can own since they're still able to play arena shows and, and make a living so I think it's the same kind of trajectory with the way artists can you know didn't used to have a say and now can have a say right right so um, and some of the, you, you named a few examples just now. Um, what do you think are some of the inflection points that you two look for during campaigns like that, during those large scale campaigns that kind of signify that this was a successful campaign or this is doing really well? What are, what are some markers that you two look for, uh, for those? For me, it's all about like ratio. Like, so mm -hmm. like how much, like how, how big is this artist's audience and how, you know, how many more people did it reach? My favorite campaigns are like when impressions are higher than the amount of people that follow them is always like really right. cool. Or, or like I love on, on Instagram, I was like looking at like percentage of people, like the percentage that a post reached that weren't your following. Like to me, that mm -hmm. kind of stuff is a success when something's getting shared a lot. And, you know, I would say normally like it's under 10% like, of like people who didn't follow you saw this post. And when you're getting over 50, 60, that means it's like, it's getting shared. It's hitting explore pages. That that kind of stuff is really important to me. And then I like looking at not just like how many likes something gets, but how many comments something gets versus how many followers they have is something that's really important to me. Because the thing that's beautiful about the internet is you can tell really early if something works or doesn't, like if an artist brand is working or not. And if you're like, okay, right. they have a thousand followers, but like they're getting a hundred comments on a thousand followers. Imagine if they had 10, imagine if they had a mm -hmm. hundred thousand, you know, that that's the kind of stuff that you can really look for. And I mean, we, we worked with them. Why don't we since day one and their engagement was off the chart since day one. Like you could tell they worked as a group immediately. There was no, there was nothing like, you know, obviously they've grown up and they've become, you know, they've grown and they've become the better musicians. Their new song is amazing. That just came out. And, um, 
you know, all that's great, but we've been able to see, you know, since inception, they worked. And that was, you know, and, right. and I would say like in, in the nineties, you would have spent so much money even figuring out if that's going to work or not. So it was nice to just launch it and it worked and you could tell and you could keep, you know, you know, going, you know, in the right direction. Based money upon like that. Yeah. Right. You keep, you know, when it, where to spend your money and how much of it you need to spend. And uh, that's, you know, the data, the real time data on a small audience it really, you know, is, is amazing. And um, another, you know, you can run like ads on Instagram or Facebook and kind of see, you can spend a hundred bucks and see like how well somebody is or isn't responding to something and pretty quickly know, okay, like that visual works, that one doesn't like this brand resonates, this one doesn't. So uh, you can spend a little money and have a small audience and really kind of see what works pretty quickly, which I absolutely love. I think it saves people a lot of time and money. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's definitely nice getting that increased level of uh, of analytics that all these different platforms provide. When you mentioned the you you like kind of looking for content that reaches a lot more people than existing followers, and I, I know kind of uh, Instagram will like report on that statistic. What do you feel are like the keys to content that tend to drive a lot of engagement and kind of like over index on reach and shares? Um, a couple things. One is something i mean you I, I, I it has to be something that's like shareable even if you don't know anything about who posted it so like that's why like quote pages get shared so much because like people are inspired by them and they don't they don't know who wrote the quote they don't know who runs the page but they they're they like what it says and they show it to their friends or they put it on their story because they believe in it so it's like um you know something you have to think of like okay if somebody who knew nothing about me watched this would they like it? And even, and then second question, would they want to show it to somebody else? And I think a lot of times people like get caught up in their own fan bases and they're like, well, our poor fans will get it. So it's great. And then there, and it is important to create like content like that for your core fans. But if you're, if your goal is to get a bigger audience, you have to really think about like, how do I not just make my current fans happy, but how do I create something that somebody gets that doesn't know anything about me really quickly and that's hard that's why like people are like oh tiktok it's easy it's 15 seconds but like conveying a message in 15 seconds and doing it well is really it's it's actually it's it's a it's hard it's you know i commend people who do that really well it's, it's not easy to produce that kind of content right yeah i was just i was just thinking when you said that like i've never thought of content good content in a way where um do people like asking yourself do people want to share this and that sets a really really high bar but it sets the right bar because that's exactly what you want people to do when they interact with the content when they engage with the content absolutely and a lot of people have beautiful instagram pages that <laughs> that nobody follows like yeah. I, I, it, it is not that movie build it and they will come that's not how it works like it, um it, <laughs> i don't know no sorry the field of dreams but it doesn't work like that on <laughs> social media all the time you have to like you have to like build it so and make it them want to share it and then they will come um but like i remember um when we were working out with um anderson pock and he had like the most this was like my the perfect case study i was so happy about this experiment mm -hmm. he had this beautiful instagram page um that was a, the most beautiful grid you know like like when i mean grid like you know like everything like lined up and matched and everything and it was really pretty and and as soon as we we convinced him to switch it from that to a normal feed. Is this when it was like his album artwork kind of like yeah, on his entire page? Of, it was beautiful. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. So like when we switched to normal content, it exploded. So because people were sharing it and thought it was funny and like it showed him more and it it it, they, it was easier to comment on it. It just created it made people want to have a conversation more, even though the other one was visually stunning. It just wasn't what it you know, it it it's it takes more than just like having a page that looks great. Also, when you think about right. it, like the, the amount of time you as a regular person spend on Instagram a day, how much more time do you spend in your feed than going than going to like a page? A whole page. Like, yeah. <laughs> I can go through a whole day and maybe not do that, you know? So it's, yeah. does that like does the grid matter, you know? Because all you're seeing in the feed is like a corner of someone's face. <laughs> and then <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, cool. So for the last kind of general topic, I want to pivot. You got you both are obviously executives of a company. So um, I guess how has how have your management styles? What are kind of they like now, and how have they developed over time? And um, what have you what have you kind of learned about just like managing people in their careers and and the potential that they have as a as an employee and as a, a person in the larger greater uh, music business? Well, we've gone to a lot of therapy. <laughs> not for us for like us getting better at this because I, yeah, I think us getting uh-huh. better at like being and managing people because like mm-hmm. uh, I don't think I'm naturally good at that anything I do now that is effective has been taught to me um at least on my side um we I mean you know we used to yell a lot <laughs> we, were, <laughs> we were children we were children with no money and a lot of debt and <laughs> needed to get to the Backstreet Boys or just money for the Backstreet Boys. Concert. I mean, like, you know, we needed something. We had really huge aspirations and we needed everybody to like get their shit together and work for us. Um, but, you know, the hard times, you know, they never go away, but like they're truly hard times, I think were past. Um, and yeah, like, I mean, we've just, I think really in the past two years and really this year during being quarantined and having a very different mm-hmm. schedule, we've put a lot of time and effort into business coaches, therapists, group uh, co- uh, coaching, things like that, to just really learn new skills when, you know, and we have a budget to do so at this point, you know, we were, we were scrappy back in the day, but you know, I, think, I think me and Cassie both just the way that we both, our work style is work your ass off, get it done. And to me, like, I think the hardest thing that I had to realize about people that work for me is that that's not everyone else's work style that mm. I can't, um, I didn't really understand that people's brains worked so differently from each other. I mean, of course, <laughs> everyone's different, but just like that you process things this way and I process things this way and I work in this way and you work in this way. Mm. I had very like narrow understanding of like you work your ass off at works and that there was like no other psychology to it. Um, right. I know a lot different now. Like that's, that's a very, I think very differently about that. And I, I now go in and figure out, okay, how does this person best, you know, get mm. motivated? And how do they best succeed and fulfill what I need them to do? And mm. I put energy into their style as opposed to mm. just it works for me. Um, also, another thing that I think I very much did not understand when I first started was that I thought every person on earth wanted to get a job and climb the ladder and be at the top eventually. And mm. that's just not true. Um, I still, because I am that person very naturally, still don't completely understand it um but I accept it and I get it and I understand that like you know oh you don't want this promotion to make your life a living hell and make more money but like you know have a bigger (laughs) job title I don't understand 
Um, and I, you know, I now accept that that's not appealing to everyone. Um, and just understanding that people have different goals. And I think like for me with both employees and artists, my first conversation is always, what are your goals? Because if I don't understand where you're trying to get to, I have no roadmap, you know, no capability to make a roadmap to help us get there together. Mm. So, yep. And yep. I think it's the same with artists. Like some artists don't necessarily want to be superstars. And that was, that's the same concept. And I didn't understand that either. I thought every single artist wanted to be a Backstreet Boys or a Taylor Swift or whatever. And like, it's just not true. Like some artists are like, you know, it's not like they would necessarily shy away from that, but some artists are like, dude, I'm happy making a living and being able to have this be the living I make. Yeah. And I did not know people like felt like that until I started working with Right, artists, right. You know? Yeah, there's a there's a growing I mean, definitely when you compare it to the Backstreet Boys, this episode is gonna be all about the Backstreet Boys. Um, when you compare it to the Backstreet Boys from from the you know. From their, when you compare their career to careers now, there's a much larger middle class of artists. Like the yes. Backstreet Boys could have been a band making music in their basement that got signed to some record deal. And the next thing you know, they were the Backstreet Boys. But the grind, the journey, I feel like is much longer. And because of that, um, you have people that kind of stay in that middle area for much, much longer, you know. Actually, um, I heard a, there was an interview recently with Shaquille O'Neal and he talked about it was telling the story of Aaron Carter's song, How I Beat Shaq, and how it's a true story. <laughs> he was playing like horse or cat or whatever the game is with Aaron Carter, and Aaron Carter beat him. But it was because the Backstreet Boys were recording their first demo in Shaq's garage. <laughs> and he made this comment. <laughs> I was like, only I would have signed them. And I remember thinking, if only you would have signed them, they wouldn't have made it. Because everything, right. like Shaquille O'Neal is a phenomenal athlete. Shaquille O'Neal is not a, like a music industry genius. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And as much as some of those people did some horrible things to the Backstreet back in the day, they were genius and they made them what they were. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, yeah, they could have just been a nobody artist or every piece of that puzzle was exactly perfect, which is why it exploded to where it was. Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. And then uh, Cassie, what have you, what have you kind of learned as, as a, as an executive over the past however many years? Um, I think that the, I think the biggest person that gets in your way is, is an executive is yourself, um, mm -hmm. your emotions, taking things personally and just, you know, not, I, I think two, two big things I learned. One is learn like what Jade was talking about earlier. Everyone is not like you. In fact, most people are not like you. And everyone has different things that drive them and different ways they process information and just being more conscious of that and more accepting and empathetic, I think has really helped us on our journey. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing is um, just in general, not to take things personally. Like I remember when we first started our company and people would quit, it would, and it's still, I still get sad about it, but like, it would like devastate me when when mm -hmm. somebody would like quit. Like I took that very personally. Like I failed my career. I created a bad company. I mm. didn't create a, a good life for this person. Like I felt it really like emotionally destroyed me. And I think just realizing that somebody can, you know, it, it everyone, what everyone does is actually about them and not about you. When somebody mm -hmm. quits a job, it's, it's about them. It's about their journey. It's about what they want. It, it, you could have done your absolute best and it still wouldn't have been right for them. So mm -hmm. I just, I think learning not to think, take things personally has made me, uh, it's just, you know, I think 
more more of an empathetic um, executive, both like with our staff and the people that we work with. Right, right, absolutely. Uh, I love that, and I think it's uh, sure you're just continuing to grow, both uh, as far as how you kind of continue to evolve, how you serve your clients, as well as how you serve your team and and employees. So I think it's a great kind of ending note, and really do appreciate both of you coming on and all of the incredible work you've been able to do with CrowdSurf, and uh, very excited to see uh, how things continue to develop. So thanks again, really appreciate both of you. Thank you, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Definitely. Man, well, that was a great conversation. What did you think, Jordan? Yeah, I thought it was awesome. And I think, obviously, both of them have a good amount of experience, not just as digital marketers, but as executives. So I think people who kind of want to find their footing in the industry can listen to this episode, as well as people that want to find their footing specifically in digital marketing. I think one of the things that we haven't really gotten super into, we got a little bit into it um, when we interviewed the president of Maverick, but just like, you know, looking at people for who they are and leaning into their strengths and kind of going from there just as an executive and what that's like at a company. So I was super excited to get in some of the admin stuff and some of the just getting to know people stuff in terms of like running a business, you know, um, you know, the digital marketing is one thing, but running a business is another. And I'm glad we were able to cover both. What do you think, Sam? Yeah, I thought it was great. I mean, just diving into the tactics for helping artists acquire fans, I think is always so valuable. There's no silver bullet. It's definitely a, a lot of baby steps, but I think they did a good job as far as kind of demystifying parts of that process. So very grateful to have had them on. And as always, super grateful for, for your attention and for you guys tuning in. We, we hope you found this valuable. Excited to be back here next week. we got some, uh, some big ones lined up, if you know what I mean. <laughs> All right, well, on that note, uh, we appreciate y'all greatly. We out.